Welcome to Sweet Valley Diaries, the podcast where, when your parents just don't understand, it's probably your fault. Book number 42, Caught in the Middle. Is love enough to keep Sandra and Manuel together? Excellent. What a <laughs> what a question. I feel like I say what a question now almost every time because the questions are are so to the point on the covers of these books. Hi everybody. Welcome to Sweet Valley Diaries. I of course am your host Marissa Flaxbart and with me today is the amazing Aisha Bori. Hi, thank you for having me. I am so giddy to be here and to enter this universe with you. Oh my gosh, I'm really glad to hear you say that, especially having uh, just read this book and uh I feel like this it was an interesting one, but also I have been very nervous with this book about like putting someone mm. through it. I was so honestly, I was like taking notes and I literally had a pause because at times I was like, oh my gosh, I weirdly feel like I am in each of these characters' positions, like ethically, morally, wow. um, romantically. So I was truly feeling it. Well, I was so excited to have you on this episode to talk about Caught in the Middle when you agreed to do this one because um, I know that you are such a smart, concise, like intelligent thinker and I don't know, just so well-spoken and articulate on matters of racial issues. Uh, oh, so. well, you are too sweet, but I think about it a lot. So I am happy to be here to dissect that particular topic with you. <laughs> <laughs> so Gladiators, in case you didn't get the, figure this out by now, Caught in the Middle is a book that um, is one of the first, I believe, the first of what will be an increasing number of books in the Sweet Valley High series that has some element of a non-white character having something going on. And I'm sure that the first time I read these books, which was back in the early 2000s, I know that, I mean, there's a record of it on SweetValleyDiaries.net, that that struck me, was very clear, you know, 20, no, I guess it was like, yeah, about 20 years after having them, they were originally written, that it was like a little bit, I don't know, touchy, a little bit weird to to read about those issues, but, but not as much as... It is now. Like now, I feel like I have right. an even more dialed up like sensitivity to maybe another level of the, the, I don't know, just being a little bit like wanting to be careful thinking about it and talking about it, seeing things that maybe I didn't see before. Um, but then, I mean, this book, it's not like it's all terrible news, you know, we're right, right. In the way that it, <laughs> what, what's happening. And I was actually surprised because I forgot from the first time I read the book, this is happening more and more, uh, I forgot certain things that happened and they hit me uh, anew. Right. Well, this was my first time reading not only this book, but, you know, the and a book from the Sweet Valley High series in general. And I was also struck by the kind of redemption or restorative justice, I guess, aspect at the end. But I had fraught thoughts, honestly, like at the end, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk more about the plot. But at the end, I was like, all right, so this feels redemptive for Manuel, it feels redemptive for the couple. But at the same time, I was like, this redemption is cloaked in a model minority. Like the myth of the model minority is something I would love to talk to you more about, because I feel like part of Manuel's redemption, part of what saves their relationship, I would argue or not argue, but I would think is partially love, but also partially like the fact that he fits one prototype of a minority that is acceptable to her parents. Um, 
and saves her life at the end. I don't know, sorry if I'm jumping too far ahead of anything, but, and this might be something that we redact, but I'm just deeply curious to talk about this. Would, I would you. never redact it. No, that's so, it's so <laughs> true. And it is, it, it's a, it's a shade of this conversation that I think sort of demands discussing. So yes, let's definitely talk about it. Uh, in fact, it might be a good thing for us to talk about in the extra drama episode. So Ooh. that's like the next week conversation. Don't worry, Aisha, we'll really have the conversation <laughs> in a minute. But <laughs> but okay. that, I think that, that would be, it's such a big topic that I would love to is. Uh, delve into. So you mentioned that this was your first Sweet Valley High novel. Yes. Which, I, I, this is an interesting first one, I'll, m- mostly because right. it doesn't focus on Jessica and Elizabeth very much, although they get their moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but they before do. we talk about the story, we talk about Jess and Elizabeth, we talk about Sandra and Manuel, let's uh, talk about the cover of the yes. book. Yes. It's very dreamy and smoldering. Yeah, it's a little bit like, you know, West Side Story, Romeo and Juliet, you know? Yes, very much like star-crossed lovers. I mean, you can kind of even see it in the coloring. I thought they're, I actually think their shirt coloring is deeply fascinating. So Sandra is wearing a very like bright teal colored shirt and Manuel's shirt is in conversation, but a little bit more of a dull muted color. And when I first saw the cover, I was like, oh, fascinating. Those are two colors that are deeply in conversation, but they're not like, they're just enough alike. Um, I, maybe I'm thinking too much into it, but I just thought, oh, they, they like, they're colors that you might, you might call them the same color, but they're just different shading. And I was like, okay, we're, they are priming and prepping us for a conversation about race right away, just even in terms of the color of, color of their shirts. You are so on my level here, Aisha. Like the (laughs) idea, there is no too much. There is no thinking too much about Uh, any of this. This is, we're already thinking too much about it just by engaging in this conversation. Um, Yeah, uh, their clothes are also, I mean, they're both wearing very plain clothes. Mm-hmm. And neither of them looks terribly happy. You know, it's dreamy. Yeah. But they both right. are kind of like staring off into the middle distance like they have something else on their mind, even though they're happy to be together. Yes, yes. And it's very, it's quite formal. Like they're taking a portrait that, dare I say it, someone's parents are taking of them. <laughs> um, it's kind of, they have that stiffness of posture. Yeah, Manuel especially. Um, boy, really looks kind of sad. Very sad, very brooding. Um, like he's he's half there, half not. Like they're both, bo- you know, corporally there, but I think their minds are elsewhere <laughs> yeah. probably contemplating like, oh, will we be together any longer? So... This is, you know, Sandra and Manuel, of course, the title characters. Sandra, um, gladiators will recognize potentially from the book that was about Sandy Bacon and Jeannie West that happened, oh, a number of books ago where they were best friends and they were in a little bit of a feud because uh, Sandra felt um, so like nothing compared to Jean. Manuel is a brand new character. He was first mentioned in the last book. Um and he, on the cover of this book, it, he it's not that he definitely looks like a, a Mexican guy, but he also very much looks like Nick Jonas to me. Yes, he's ve- that was my first thought, too. I was like, OK, he looks like a, a, you know, a member of a boy band, Nick Jonas, deeply accurate and frankly can pass. You know, I think if it wasn't if if it, his race wasn't coded in his name on the cover, it would just be another caught in the middle, like love triangle as situation. 
Um, yeah. Where here it's, you know, if there is a triangle of any sorts, the third party is <laughs> um, prejudice or their parents' racism, right? Very but well I, said. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he definitely looks passing. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I almost makes you wonder, you know, if the idea behind this cover, I mean, you have the Kindle edition, so yours is not faded. You know, I sometimes oh, I wonder yeah. with my old, super old books, if the cover right. is just faded. But um, I wonder if maybe they were thinking about people's parents that might be prejudiced like Sandra Bacon's parents. And they were like, let's make it as easy as possible for little girls to get this book home or little whoever's to get the book home. Right. I, I Absolutely, that makes sense. Early on in the book, we get a quick sense of, of what's going on here in terms of Sandra and Manuel. So I'm just going to read this passage real quickly. Um, so Jeannie and Sandra are both uh, cheerleaders, and Jessica Wakefield is a cheerleader. We get a little bit of cheerleader time in this book. Um, listeners, they haven't forgotten about the Regina Morrow Scholarship. They're still planning on ways to raise money for that. Um, so Regina is not totally forgotten, although she doesn't get mentioned very much in this book. Um, before I even read my passage, I have to ask you, Aisha, this book had a, this book had a lot of real quick updates on things that happened in past books. I was so deeply curious. I was, there was a part of me that was like, should I pause and go look it up? Because there were so <laughs> many ancillary details that I was like, this world is teeming. The scholarship I noted, um, just like, like, um, Lila, Lila, her parent, oh, her daddy yeah. in Rome. I was like, um, just so fascinated by that because I was like, I'm sure there are previous mentions of her father being on different trips, right? Probably every book he's on a new trip, bringing her back. Pretty much, city. yeah, you got it, <laughs> got it in one. That's um, basically uh, George Fowler. <laughs> so Regina, did you get? Did you notice she was the one that I believe the way the book describes it is that she. Um, she had a very small amount of cocaine amount of cocaine and had yes i was like oh my gosh this is a lot there this they are passing over this so even though i was saying earlier that this is not uh, like a prototypical sweet valley high novel you do get within it so many little glimpses of past books the sandra and jean book the uh the regina book the like the last couple of regina books um, the one, both the one where she died, but also in the previous book, they were doing this fundraiser. Um, I'm sure there's some other things that I'm forgetting, but I've gotten so far off the topic of Manuel now that I will, I will read my passage here. Okay. Jeannie was Sandra's closest friend, and Jessica wondered what she thought of her friend's new romance. After all, Manuel came from a completely different world. His family was from Mexico and still spoke Spanish at home. Manuel had always hung around with the Mexican kids at school. Sandra's parents had a reputation for being strict with their only daughter, who was also the youngest in her family. Moreover, they were reputed to be bigoted. Lila Fowler, one of Jessica's best friends, claimed that Mr. Bacon had written a letter to the local paper complaining about minority members and immigrants ruining the community. Jessica wondered how they were reacting to Manuel as their daughter's boyfriend. So that's early on, gives us a quick glimpse of what we're going to be encountering. Yes. <laughs> There's some sort of significant news in that paragraph between the lines, which is the idea that Manuel has been hanging out mostly with the Mexican kids at school is honestly a big reveal that, oh my gosh, there are Mexican kids at this school. 
it's it's not something that's really come up in even though this is set in Southern California, like duh, that's what I've been saying for you know forty two episodes now. Like there must be Mexican <laughs> kids there, people of Mexican descent. I was struck by that. I mean, I did because because this was my first book. I, I mean, I was like, okay, who are the other you know Mexican kids? Will they appear in the book? And when they didn't throughout the course of this particular book, I was I was just a little curious, honestly, because I was thinking, what would they think about this relationship, right? When this relationship, it, it ends up for, you know, it ends up becoming, frankly, the talk of the school. I mean, almost it gets to the newspaper, the eyes and ears. Um, um, the editor almost publishes a little run mentioning the relationship and people are starting to gain no- get, you know, to notice it. So I was wondering uh, when they mentioned that line, what were any of the Mexican kids, other Mexican kids besides Manuel thinking his friends, but we didn't get that perspective. And I will say that is something I craved. That's such a good point. I mean, not even a mention of any of these other kids. I mean, this book really, it really isn't his story. I mean, it could have been, but the way that it's written, Mm -hmm. they really, really focus on Sandra and her parents, which I mean, I guess should come as no shock to anyone with any familiarity with the series or just like the 80s or you know yeah, american history right, right. Uh, but but you make a real you bring something up that's really significant to the story which is that people are starting to find out but sandra is dead set on keeping the fact that she's dating manuel from her parents as long as possible like she she wants to tell them and she attempts to tell them a few times in this book that she is dating this guy that she that who is you know, his family is Mexican. But she keeps on bumping up against what she feels like are just impossible walls to even bringing it up. And basically feels like the moment she tells her parents about him, the relationship is going to be over. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, even though everybody around her is telling her that it's not only is it a bad idea and unfair to him to keep it a secret, and like, it's not a real relationship if you don't tell your parents, Sandy. (sighs) I I lost my train of thought in the middle of that sentence. But everybody around her is telling her that. But she's just kind of like, if I can hold on, then like as long as I can hold on to the secret, that's how long I can hold on to the relationship. Does that sound right to you? That does. She really does equate this relationship as only inherently being one of secrecy. And I think that there is... um, like repeatedly she's she kind of tries to buy or borrow time um first with Manuel when he's like I don't feel comfortable with this and he articulates his deep discomfort she says you know please give me some more time he loves her so he acquiesces but then increasingly as she ropes her friends you know um Jeannie she makes Jeannie lie and cover for her multiple times um Elizabeth when she you know asks her to take uh the mention of you know, them being a couple out of the newspaper, she also, you know, tries to get her to cover for her in a certain sense by taking it out. So uh, what struck me was just how to maintain this relationship, she was just running on borrowed time. And I felt like, honestly, secondhand anxiety and panic. I was like, okay, I feel like something's slipping out of my hands as I'm reading this, because it just feels like she she's, by writing her parents off, um, she almost writes off the relationship. That Like, there's just something in there, I think, that she just writes off her parents, and so she writes off any longevity for their relationship. Writes off her parents parents as just never possibly understanding or or going to change. Right. Uh, Yeah. Um, And you make a good point, too, about the anxiety. I I felt like she's so set on they're not the idea that they're not going to understand that she misses, I think, several off ramps. Like she gets opportunities where 
now would be the perfect time, Sandy. Like, if you do it, mm-hmm. you know, th- you'll have a really solid argument, for example, of why why you right. like this guy. Not that you should need that, but, you know, clearly a little right. bit of something would help. Um, but I do want to say that there's one thing that, while the secrecy is, you know, kind of everything to Sandy, Manuel is really dead set against it from the beginning. This is mm-hmm. different from a, a previous Romeo and Juliet book that happened in this series, which was between this these characters, Maria Santelli, who actually does get a mention in this book because she's a cheerleader, and Michael, uh, her boyfriend. Like, they were really, like, their families were feuding. So there was no, they were both white mm. people. There was no racial element there. But that was a relationship that actually did seem kind of like it was fueled by the secrecy. Like, they were only really in it. With some sort of... For that. Yeah, like maybe like a fleeting hope that their families could become friends again. But Sandy, on the other hand, is is very in love with Manuel and feels like no one has ever seen her. Like she doesn't... She didn't know what love was before she met him. Um, mm-hmm. Here, I have a passage that... There's not a lot of boys in this book. So normally, I guess this is the kind of thing that would fall under the jurisdiction of, of boys talk. But... <laughs> um, okay, so... I just want to say that while I normally love to do accents on this show, I don't really want to give Manuel a big accent, so I'm going to maybe skip it, uh, or else I'll just try to make him sound like a boy. Um, all right. But I have to mention it because it says that he had a slightly accented voice. Listeners, you'll understand once I read the passage. Promise me you'll call me tonight, Manuel said huskily in his slightly accented voice, cupping Sandra's chin in his hand. He had been waiting for her when she and Jeannie got out of practice and had insisted on driving her home, even though she would have been happy to walk. Sandra felt she had to pinch herself to prove she wasn't... What does that mean? My book says Sandra had to pinch herself to prove she wasn't coming. I don't know what that means. I read that too, and I was like, okay. <laughs> uh, okay, let's let's move on. Manuel, I think it's supposed to say to prove she wasn't dreaming. Sandra had okay. to print. Sandra felt she had to pinch herself to prove she wasn't dreaming. Manuel was so unlike any other guy she had known. He was a junior as she was, but he acted years older and even looked slightly older. Sandra loved his dark, curly hair and chocolate brown eyes. Manuel was on the track team and had a terrific build, too. He wasn't terribly tall, but then neither was she, and it was nice to be able to look up just a little bit to stare into his eyes. Being with him made her tingle all over. And the way he treated her, that was the best part. No one had ever been so good to her before, but then she had never been in love before either, never even had a serious crush. Anyway, Manuel is soft and sincere. He has a low voice. He's very mature. They both come from big families. They both come from big families. Um, but she is basically treated like the only child because she is the only, you know, young woman in the household. All of her four brothers um, are off. So it's funny that they both come from big families, but she very much has um, like only child energy. Yeah. And she's getting that from her parents, too. I mean, you could see how the daughter, the youngest of a, you know, I think she has four older brothers could get that but um basically her mother is really involved in her life like she's so involved she's kind of just realizing now that her mom 
is so invested. Like she didn't until she had a secret to keep from her mom. She didn't really realize how invested her mom was. There's a part in this book where it says that uh, we'll get to this part of the story, I guess, but where she doesn't want Manuel and her relationship to be written about even in code in the Oracle because mm-hmm. in the gossip column, because her mom reads the Oracle, her mom reads the school newspaper. Yeah, I like I was like, okay, surveillance state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So I mean, so that's I mean, that's amping up the the question here. We're, I mentioned Manuel's family. Um, what did you think of our glimpse into Manuel's home life at the Lopez's? So I loved I mean, I thought I love the family. I love that it was also kind of a mirror of um of Sandy's family insofar that he had, you know, I think a few br- younger brothers and also he had a younger sister. Yeah. And um, there was, I would have loved to see more of the relationship between Sandy and that little sister who I believe was 13 years old. They had, they shared like one little comment where she was, the sister was a little shy and said, oh, it's so hard having a lot of boys in the house. And Sandy was like, I feel you. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a moment I think that I would have loved to just see more of. Um, and w- what I was struck by was so much of the book was, okay, what do the Bacon family think of, you know, what would they think of Manuel? And I was thinking Manuel's mother seems so, you know, uh, like hospitable. She asked Sandy, you know, stay, I'll teach you how to make tortillas, tell your parents, um, like I'm teaching you how to make traditional Mexican food. And I wondered, uh, was was Sandy the first white girl that uh, Manuel was dating or had brought home? And I, I kind of actually wanted to know more about the the racial aspect from his family's point of view. Like, what do they think about the fact that Sandy was white and wealthier? Um, they, you know, didn't seem to have any misgivings, but it, it was just a curiosity. Yeah, that's true. I mean, in fact, the Bacon's prejudice is definitely treated as an outlier. It's the kind uh, in the community, at least in our main characters. It's like a thing right. that everybody in the story understands that there are people like that, but we get to see mostly people having kind of a, a, a disdain or, or sadness or shock or embarrassment about that kind of thinking. Um, and, or we see parents that are like Manuel's parents who are there. Manuel's mother is so kind to Sandy that it just makes Sandy feel really guilty, but also embarrassed. Like the, the book comes right out and says, you know, now like having the opportunity. I mean, here, I actually have the page here. She had never seen her own family in a negative light before, and it hurt her to realize how much they suffered in comparison. You know, so she's feels like shit i mean it's it's bad feeling that she's going through so much shame so much shame yeah and it's just compounded by the fact that she is really letting manuel down and he Mm -hmm. is telling her that you know he's he is disappointed in her there there is a scene where they talk about it um that i think was one of the first times that we really got much of anything from Manuel. And it was one of the times in the book where I was like, oh, okay. Like, I was almost surprised that the book went there. Uh, mm. I don't know what you'll think of it, but I'm going to go ahead and read again, as long as I'm just reading the whole book to you. I, I You can see my book, Aisha. I I put a bunch of I little love flags it. in it. There was, the flags. <laughs> there's, yeah, not a lot happens in this book, but there's a lot of interesting and novel passages. 
it's very internal. It's very like interior, like slipping in and out of characters' consciousnesses. I, did, I actually wanted to ask you if that was typical because we did get a lot of a lot of psyche in this, and I didn't know if it was typical of Sweet Valley High novels or we were very much because um, I think you're right. Like plot wise, it's it's m- much more driven by the internal. I think that to answer your question, this book is plot light for a Sweet Valley novel, but the thing that is classic Sweet Valley. And we talk about it, listeners on the podcast, I know you've heard me say this a million times. But it's it's true. And it I, I'm getting more and more kind of fascinated by it, the more of the books I read and talk about. The way that we flit in between characters perspectives mm-hmm. is a staple of the books from the very beginning, where without so much as a hard return, <laughs> you, know, you can kind of like sidestep into someone else's perspective and all the while maintaining the third person. Mm-hmm. But it's like now we're hearing the third person from – it doesn't even have to be a main character. Eventually in right. this book we get Manuel, but it takes until mm-hmm. like the l- latter third of the book before we get a Manuel perspective, I think. So um, here's when Sandy Sandy and Manuel are having a fight, sort of. They don't really fight. They're, they do seem like they have a very happy relationship, a very loving relationship. <laughs> But, they do. you know, he's talking to her one more time about how, you know, she still hasn't, she hasn't told her parents. I, I think that she is basically having to tell him why. This is still early on in the book. Um, so all he knows uh, to this point is that she's never introduced him to her parents. So he says, what's the problem? You think they'll object to me because I'm Mexican? Sandra stared down at the floor. It sounded so horrible when he put it like that so disgusting. Shame for her parents flooded over her. They they can't help it. They don't mean to be like they are. I mean, basically, they're good people. It's just, sure, Manuel said, his voice bitter. I know, all my life I've met people like that. Basically good people who think just because my last name is Lopez and my skin is brown instead of white that I'm not worth bothering with. His eyes filled with sadness. Ooh, just like on the cover of the book. Mm. Um, I'm just sorry your parents are like that, that's all. But... I'm not surprised. I guess in a community like this one, you get used to prejudice and you learn to live with it. So. Yeah, I I mean, it's that I'm so glad, honestly. I was kind of relieved to read that because it did give mm-hmm. him, I mean, whatever glimpse of his story and his narrative, I think it was important to just underscore like just as Sandy's feeling very shitty for the shame that she is carrying and uh, realizing like the stark truth of the depths of her parents' racism, I think it's imp- it was important for us to get that too from Manuel. So I was very relieved to read that. Relief is a good way to say it. And it's like, well, finally we get to hear what Sweet Valley is like from a non-white character. And this is the first yeah. glimpse that we're really getting of this kind of prejudice. I mean, I don't think it will come as a shock to readers because there has been quite a bit of like economic prejudice in Sweet- the Sweet Valley mm-hmm. up up until now. So I, those things seem like they go hand in hand. And sure enough, in this book, the Bacons talk a lot about the country club. There's this guy, Carl Pierce, I think is his name. We never actually yeah. meet him. He's a blonde guy. Blonde hair, blue eyes. Sandy's just picturing him and assuming that he has blonde hair and blue eyes. She's probably right, but he is the boy that her parents are desperately trying to set her up for for this upcoming country club dance that she... And I think actually there's one very astute moment when Jessica thinks, 
is um, when when they're talking about the country club dance at school and Sandy says, oh, no, I think it would be too stuffy. And Jessica thinks to herself, is it too stuffy for Sandy or does Sandy think it's too stuffy for Manuel? And say what you want about Jessica. I thought that was deeply astute and right on the money. Yeah, she's like seeing seeing right through it. And a lot of what we get from Jessica in this book is her thinking about Sandy and the relationship. Yes. Um, (laughs) And so Sandy has been kind of more than anybody else put making Jeannie lie about this. So she's lying to her parents. She has a couple of like false start conversations. Um, there's this whole big thing. Oh, there's this whole big thing about the Mexican festival that's going to happen in Sweet Valley. Yes. Where we get this, I don't know, really interesting glimpse at her, the way her mom thinks about all this. Uh, listeners, I mean, depending on what your parents are like, maybe this will sound familiar. I don't know, but, uh, so all that's happened at this point, so this is before Manuel is even brought up at all, or the prospect, what Sandy does most of the time is she's like, well, what if I were to date someone who was like different from us or who maybe looked different from us or maybe was like a Mexican guy? Like, what would that be like? And her mom densely doesn't <laughs> read between the lines. Her mom, my favorite, th- not my favorite by which I mean I was it was a gut punch was when her mom, uh, I think it was the second time mm-hmm. during which Sandy says, you know, brings up this hypothetical situation uh, where she's like, mom, what would, what would you think, um, you know, if I were dating a Mexican guy? And her mom comes back and says, you know, Sandy, I was so disturbed when you brought, even mentioned yes. the possibility that I couldn't sleep. And that's, I think that was the turning point for me. And I think it was the turning point for Sandy when she realized the stakes were even higher than she believed initially. I totally agree. That that time, that exact moment is just like, oh, shit. Like, she, I actually understand now why Sandy's not telling them. Like, if because now it's basically like your mom just said, the very thought of this is, if hypothetically, is keeping me up at night. Just, I'm just repeating what you said. But, yeah. Uh, but this is so I only bring all that up now because this passage I'm about to read is before all of that. So even before Sandy has ever th- talked about the possibility of a boyfriend who may or may not be Mexican, they're just talking about a friggin street fair or, called a Mexican festival. Okay, keeping in mind, this is Southern California. So, uh, all right. I have to admit, I've got some misgivings, she said. Don't you remember what happened during that festival in Los Perros when those riots broke out and people got hurt? She shook her head. It may sound terrible, but I wish they'd canceled the festival. I don't like the idea. Sandra stared at her mother. Why? She cried. Mom, what can possibly go wrong? You just think Mexicans are hot-tempered and they start riots, she added, horrified by her mother's unconcealed prejudice. Mrs. Bacon shrugged. I don't know what I think. I just know that we've seen enough racial tension in this part of the state to last for a long time. Her eyes were dark with concern. Remember, she added, I grew up in a neighborhood where racial violence tore the community apart. I know what it's like. Mrs. Bacon had grown up in a town plagued with racial tension, and it had left permanent marks on her. But this time, Sandra did not feel sympathetic. I could go on, because it goes on like that, but it's a good example of something that... We've been hearing here in America, we have heard uh, some of this, especially back in June, as a response to the idea, very idea of rioting. Like, yeah, no, that's a real I can of worms. It, I'm just casually opening up there. But no, I think, well, you know, my thought throughout 
when each time, frankly, that Miss uh, Mrs. Bacon spoke, I was thinking, you know, I, w- I couldn't help but think of our contemporary day, and and I wondered she would probably be in that demographic of people who could very much use one of those quote-unquote anti-racist reading lists. Mm -hmm. Um, Or I was just thinking, how would she be responding? Would she be a woman who voted for Trump? I, 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 you know, of course, I just couldn't help but think of those, um, those analogs. Um, But it just was interesting, as you keep mentioning that, you know, we are in Southern California in this universe. So, and Mrs. Bacon repeatedly mentions her own upbringing and mentions her own mother and says, like, I'm with my mother on this one. I'm with your grandmother on this one when she talks to Sandy. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to kind of get a little bit more of Mrs. Bacon's own upbringing about was there some catastrophic event um, that happened or what were the racial tensions that happened that she speaks about and kind of dangles as um, a threat or a justification to Sandy about why she feels the way that she feels. Right. I mean, she even says at one point, like, you know, Sandy, I've lived here a lot longer than you have. It's it's that parental argument that is very difficult to I it really got my hackles up, actually, because it's hard to mm. argue with that. Like, especially if you're 16, like you I know better than you. So you're just going to have to trust right. me on this one. And she lays out this argument that it's clear. You know, what does she say? She says, I don't know what I think. You know, she's laying out, she thinks that she's being very measured and reasonable. And she doesn't see that what she's saying is coming from uh, this base level assumption that is inherently prejudiced, right? Because the by very the definition of prejudice is, you know, you're judging something before you encounter it. And all of her talk about, I mean, we started talking about, you know, riots and stuff, but actually, she's just talking about a festival, you know, and... She's using the fact that they want to, that the, the, the Mexican festival would, I, I sorry, I want to take back the word they, because um, I would think of a Mexican festival as being something that allows the whole community to celebrate um, the, you know, fun things that are about Mexican heritage, in addition to being for the Mexican community. Like, it's not just, I mean, they're reading about it in the paper, right? Like, let's all go do this thing. You know, the Mexican members of our community can celebrate and they're generously sharing with the rest of the community this bounty of their heritage or whatever. But (laughs) Mrs. Bacon uses it as as an explanation. Like, no, you see, they are different from us and they want to stay different from us by pointing out and holding on to all the things that are different. But... Uh, it's it's also interesting when she keeps repeating and insisting like i've i've lived here i've a i've lived longer than you sandy and i've lived here longer and that emphasis on here got me thinking about the history of sweet valley um uh, you know who were the first migrants there i mean the migration uh, those it's been for a while right so i mean i think they i that's why i was deeply curious i was thinking okay mrs bacon with whom did you grow up and also you you were not the first people there right so i think take a look at your local history um and probably this is a festival that even if it was just instituted as a tradition recently in the sweet valley high universe it probably is celebrating a heritage that's been there for a very long time yeah. Um, so I just couldn't help but think that. Well, now what you're saying is making me think about California specifically, it, you know, has a, a, a different um, kind of founding history than a lot of the country in that so much of our uh, of our state was founded by Spanish uh Spanish colonists, as opposed and and um, like Junipero Serra, right? The uh, 
I'm saying that, oh man, I just saw that super Anglo. I never said it out loud before. <laughs> Pero Serra, who is, um, you know, a, a Spanish priest, is, you know, so it was, Spa- it was like Spanish colonizers rather than English or, or French, you know. So I only bring that up because even like the question of like last names, because that's different from mm-hmm. like Mexican and indigenous people but even like the idea of spanish last name wouldn't necessarily signify anything unusual in californian history i don't know or, or but also even just like the names right like i live in los Feliz. like i and, and you know mrs bacon mentions like los perros like the names of their own communities and like the geography itself is a signifier of a deeper history um so I I was just thinking, you know, Mrs. Bacon, like read up on the names of the places around you, um, y- you know, <laughs> but yeah. Why do you feel so entitled to like be the arbiter of like who is there isn't allowed to, anyway? Uh, oh my gosh, yeah. this is, <laughs> no, we're, we're, Mrs. Bacon is our, 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 uh, um, scape, I don't know what the word is. We're piling it all onto Mrs. Bacon's back, but, but, uh, but yes, but the, she is only one person. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. We don't get a ton from Mr. Bacon because Mr. Bacon, mm-hmm. come the end of the book, seems like he actually is a little bit more flexible than she is. He And even d- during it, um, there are times during the dinners when um, when Sandy is just kind of increasingly doesn't want to speak. And so she kind of ruptures a longstanding tradition of talking to her parents about what's going on and revealing a lot of her secrets in her interior private life and so she increasingly at like i think throughout the book she will just say i don't want to eat i'm going upstairs and mrs bacon will kind of will say but oh i made a cake or oh but but i want to hear about your friends and mr bacon has kind of like let her um and that struck me where i think he was of the two definitely more respectful of sandy's boundaries yeah that's true that's a good point i hadn't really thought about that but you're right that does come up um so Sandy, uh, I mentioned earlier that she approaches Elizabeth about taking that column out of the uh, oracle, or taking her name out of the Heisenier's <laughs> column, and uh, it, it's clear then that Sandy and Elizabeth aren't really friends, because so, Elizabeth is like surprised that Sandy's even talking to her, but this is, uh, I'm glad that you as a reader got a chance to see Elizabeth doing what Elizabeth does in these books, which is someone b- seeks her out and she gives them sound advice about like, basically just tells them why what they're doing is maybe, maybe not great. <laughs> like, are you, sh- <laughs> like, how does Manuel feel about all of this? <laughs> She's definitely the therapist of the friend group. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I only bring that up because... Now, after, you know, several of these, like, a lot of Sandy making Jeannie sort of lie about her relationship with Manuel, and after Manuel, basically, Sandy's trying to make, like, a peace offering with him, and they agree to go out on this boat, which, that was a big, like, clue for me, like, oh, I didn't realize the Bacons were that wealthy, that they were, like, buy Sandy a boat for her birthday wealthy. I mean, it's a speedboat, it's not like a yacht, but still... But still, it's a boat, like a bonafide boat, you know, yeah. full stop. Yeah. Um, 
They go to Seca Lake, you guys, in this book so many times. They're obsessed with Seca Lake. Like, whoever wrote this book got a hold of Francine's Bible and was like, oh, this place looks interesting. They've got a lake. I, like, I didn't, I never pictured Seca Lake as the kind of lake that could have a speedboat on it, but um, apparently it can. Uh, so I mentioned all of this backstory with Elizabeth and with Jeannie and everything because basically <laughs> Sandy has allowed Manuel to think that the boat means she's going to tell her parents about him because she's not allowed to go out on the boat by herself. I mean, I don't know why she didn't think about just not telling them that she's going out on the boat, but she she doesn't want to lie to them about going on the boat. Uh, right. She's a very selective liar. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so she gets this idea that she's going to ask Jeannie to join them. Or no, wait, I'm sorry. I'm jumping the gun. So she gets the idea that she's going to ask Jeannie to, like, lie so that she can just tell her parents that she's out on the boat with Jeannie. So she goes and talks to Jeannie at school. And is apologizing for, like, how at the, the barbecue that the... Because the parents are really good friends, the Wests and the Bacons. So she, like, apologizes that she has put Jeannie in this awkward position. And Jeannie says, look, what you do with Manuel is your business. Frankly, I think you're wrong not to tell your parents the truth. It's only going to backfire in the long run. And it's got to be hurtful to Manuel in the meantime. I keep trying to talk to them, Jeannie, Sandra said, upset. But you know how conservative they are. They're going to have a fit when they find out. Jean shrugged. Well, it's up to you. But I want to ask you a favor, Sandy. Leave me out of it from now on. I feel uncomfortable having to cover for you. It's too hard with our mothers always talking to each other. Sandra stared at her. This wasn't what she had expected at all. Now what was she supposed to do? She could hardly tell her mother she was going out on the boat with a boy she had never introduced to them. And she couldn't say she was going alone. Why, I don't know, but or I don't know why she couldn't do either of those things or just not <laughs> tell them that she's going at all, but whatever. The rule was she had to have someone with her whenever she went out in the boat. I won't ask you to lie for me anymore, Sandra said carefully, stalling for time. Suddenly, an idea struck her. Why not invite Jeannie along with them? That way, she wouldn't be lying when she told her mother that she had gone out with Jeannie. What are you doing after school? She asked. Have you got plans? I was going to take Manuel on the boat, and I was thinking you might want to come with us. Sorry, Jeannie said, but Tom and I are meeting his brother at the beach. She regarded her friend. Anyway, you don't really want me along. You just want me to cover for you so that you can tell your mom you are with me again. Um, and <laughs> that Sandy's like, that's not fair. But of course it is fair because that's exactly what she's doing. So everybody's got truth. Sandy's number. <laughs> yeah, they really have. Except when Elizabeth comes in, which is I like... I, as soon as I read when Elizabeth, um, after this, yeah. after Jeannie, you know, kind of puts Sandy in her place, Sandy then gets an idea. Why don't I go to Elizabeth? Um, and <laughs> I felt such dread. I was, I mean, when Elizabeth said yes and kind of justified the strange request by thinking, you know, Sandy's been acting strange lately ever since she has started dating Manuel. Maybe she just, maybe she does want to, you know, be friends with me and extend this invite and says, yes, I just knew nothing good could, could come from it. But I do want to say something that is very interesting 
we get it in Elizabeth's head when she accepts uh, Sandy's request that Elizabeth join her and Manuel in the boat. Elizabeth thinks this, and other characters do as well, that Sandy looks different. They notice that she's prettier now that she's in love. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was such a fascinating marker of showing someone who's, who's their changed behavior or changed appearance. But it was the repeated uh, mention of this changed appearance that had just, just had me thinking. Um, I, I couldn't tell if I liked it or didn't, but it just was something I noticed. I didn't know if it's, you had thoughts about well, it. Well, it's repeated from the beginning to the end. I mean, early on, it's Jessica is even thinking that, yeah, Sandy always was less pretty than Jeannie. I understand why she why she always felt that she was average compared to her friend Jean. Uh, secretly, Jessica had always thought that, too. You know, it's basically what it's saying. <laughs> but... Now, Jessica had to admit that, you know, Sandy looked better than ever. And it's flipped on its head after some bad things happen, where now Sandy, like, looks like shit. And everybody's noticing how bad she looks. Right. Of course. But it's also that same... It's not like she looks bad, like, her hair is unbrushed and she's wearing dirty clothes. It's, like, just on her face. Like, her glow is gone or whatever. It's an aura. That's, I think... Spoiler alert, listeners. Her glow is going to go away for a while. Her aura turns a different color. I was yes. I, my woo-woo self. I'm very much into that. I was like, oh, they are noticing her aura. <laughs> yeah, and that's probably what's happening. Um, I mean, Sandy would probably be a little woo-woo with you. She describes to her mom that love is like magic, and her mom is like, yeah. "Who put these crazy ideas into your head?" Uh, so, yeah, but yeah, so so yeah, Sandy invites Elizabeth to go on this trip, and she lies. She keeps lying, man. She's digging herself in this lie hole. She tells Elizabeth that Manuel uh, really wanted to get to know Liz better, and she tells Manuel that Liz insists, like Liz just, she clearly wanted the invite. Like when Sandy brought it up in passing, you know, she couldn't not invite Liz because it would have been rude. I have to, so I, again, this is my first book, but I have to say when Sandy pull these kind of machinations, very deeply shady, very deeply manipulative, my first thought was, oh, she's pulling one from Jessica's book. Mm-hmm. I just You're feel so like right. it was big, big Jessica energy. Um, <laughs> and I just think it, it, you know, I was so struck by it. And of course, Jessica would probably do it and not feel shame or not feel guilt, but they, it it, you know, at the same time that this is all going on, Jessica is oh my organizing a surprise, surprise party right. for, um, for, for Lila, Lila, yeah. Lila, Lila. And I, um, I just thought, it, and those are some machinations in, its, in itself, which I'm sure you can read us some passages describing that that are very fun. But um, Sandy was pulling a Jessica. Yeah. No, I mean, as long as we're talking about it, because we can get through it real quick, this Lila and Jessica storyline. Lila's birthday is coming up. Lila always throws parties for people, and she makes it clear that she wants a surprise party thrown for her. Jessica thinks, I'm going to one-up that bitch. Like, she wants a surprise party, she's going to get a surprise party, and it's going to be basically a prank, right? Like, here, right. this is what she says. Elizabeth is is very uh, disapproving of this whole plan, as well she should be, because it's awful, in my opinion, but whatever. So Elizabeth tells Jessica that she thinks it's not very nice of her to not not want to do anything for Lila's birthday, just because Lila has, as Lila has pointed out, throws parties for people all the time. 
her big mansion. Well, I happen to have been planning a party for her, Jessica said loftily, but it's going to be a real surprise, which means that it isn't going to be on Saturday night, as she thinks it will. Saturday night is is Lila's birthday. Oh, when is it going to be? Sunday night, the day after her birthday, Jessica said happily, making hamburger patties with her usual lack of care. And the best thing is, I'm going to tell everyone to act like they couldn't care less about her birthday. She'll be so mad. I bet she'll stop talking to all of us, she concluded happily. (laughs) I I have to say, I know that this is a B story in this book, but I was so struck by Jessica. Like, I just want to go and read up on her. I think she's so deeply fascinating. I, like, want to know what happened to you as a child that you're so vastly different from your twin Elizabeth. And as a Gemini, I feel like I can say this. I think that Jessica's behavior to me was very shadow Gemini behavior, which is to say in the very beginning, she's very cynical about love, very non-committal, flits about here and there from boy to boy, uh, like a mutable sign or a Gemini. And the fact that she's so deeply invested in gossip um, and it kind of is a little bit manipulative. Like those all seem to me shadows sides of really deeply strength, things that could be strength. Like she could be probably an amazing gatherer of people. She could... Um, oh yeah, she you know she is. you know she is very she's a social butterfly. People listen to her, and I just want to see Jessica grow into her best self because I have to say my heart went out to her, and I just want to see her evolve and grow into like a leader, into an even keeled person. But um, <laughs> watching her behavior, I was like, girl, pull yourself back. Well, I was gonna say I have some books for you to read, Aisha, but um, if what if the goal is to see Jessica change in a meaningful way, that doesn't happen in too many books. Although sometimes she definitely steps it up. And actually, the, in the previous book to this, she uses her people organizing skills to do something really good. Um, but it's interesting. Mm-hmm. We have had some speculation on the podcast about when Jessica and Elizabeth's birthday might be. So Ooh. obviously, Gemini is the twins. Elizabeth and Jessica are literally twins. It would be pretty on the nose, but but what you're saying, it, I mean, this series is, doesn't avoid being on the nose any other time. So why not have them be <laughs> Gemini's? But but do you think like Elizabeth could fit into that? Like, can we? I do because she's deeply cerebral and she loves to write and Gemini uh, is is governed by Mercury, which is the planet and god of communication. Um, So they actually seem to me two different sides of the twins, again, very on the nose and literalized, but um, I was just struck by how each of them seem evolved in different ways, which of course is like you know, as, you know, as any siblings are, um, who are twins, it's a very common trope, but, um, I just think it's interesting. Like Jessica's such a gossip. Elizabeth is literally the editor of the newspaper. Um, there's a lot of their strengths and weaknesses are in conversation with each other, but I, I will put it out there first reader, but I think that they are Gemini's. Well, you know what? That makes, it does make sense. Even though on the nose, the literal makes sense because Francine Pascal did say initially when the books first started, she wrote that she thought of Jessica and Elizabeth as like ego and id, like, or Elizabeth Mm. and Jessica as ego and id. And that's kind of, is this, like, if we're talking about duality of Gemini, then I guess that's just another way to describe the same thing. I think that both characters actually got much more complicated and interesting than that. Thank God. But, um, but ultimately, in every book after book, we get that description of kind of like, I mean, in this book, 
uh, it comes up later. We'll, we'll get to it because we we I can't spoil the the big exciting event of the book. Um, so let's go back to Sandy and Manuel, shall we? Yes, yes, we shall. The boat is called Solar One for some reason, and it was a present, a speedboat present for for Sandy's birthday. And uh, Manuel quickly learns that Elizabeth didn't insist that she <laughs> wanted to come. Right. <laughs> uh, because Elizabeth says something like, see, I told you to, you'd have more fun without me here. Y- yeah, she's like, I told you, Sandy, I was going to be a third wheel. And then Manuel turns from Sandy to Liz and he's like, oh, I see what is going on here. Liz didn't actually want to come. Yeah. But they're not on the out on the lake for very long before something starts, That they kill the engine and then Sandy's like, like as a way to change the subject when Manuel notices what's happening that that she lied about Elizabeth whatever uh she tries starts to go start up the engine again and she just Sandy thinks the engine sounds a little bit funny so she goes to work on it and um it's making funny noises uh Elizabeth is a little bit nervous so it says um do you need help Elizabeth cried over the loud roaring. The engine was smoking a little, and she coughed from the fumes. Are you sure it's safe to play around with the engine? Yes, Sandra assured her. I had this happen once before. You stay up in the bow with Manuel, she cried. Elizabeth turned and crawled back to the front of the boat, then clambered into the seat beside Manuel. Her heart was beating wildly, and she just wanted to get back to shore. The sound of the engine was making her increasingly uneasy. Suddenly, the boat began to jerk violently, and the steering wheel shook in Manuel's hands. The next thing Elizabeth knew, there was an incredible explosion. Flames burst up from the engine, and Elizabeth screamed as the force of the blast sent her up into the air. Then the icy water of Seca Lake closed around her. When she opened her eyes, she saw Manuel swimming toward her. Desperately, he was calling out Sandra's name. Elizabeth felt dazed and dizzy from the shock of the explosion, but she managed to look around and realize that Sandra wasn't anywhere in sight. And they realize, like, it's been established that there's gasoline tanks on the boat. They're like, oh no, the boat's gonna go up in flames any second. But, um, but Manuel, you know, to the rescue, right? Uh, Manuel, such... Such a G is all I can say. He really <laughs> steps to the plate. He rescues, so he gets like Sandra's lifeless body off of the boat. He tells Elizabeth to keep swimming to shore. Don't stop swimming. She, they're like a quarter mile away from shore. So I don't know how big this damn lake is, but apparently Lake right. Sec is bigger than I thought. And he like carries Sandra. And while they're in the water heading to shore, the boat explodes boats like a phoenix in flames it just erupts and there's like fiberglass raining down into the lake it was such a fiery image and there and it does mention in passing throughout this like very vivid imagery of the fire red flames that are you know lighting up the sky that there are a few eyewitnesses yes and they're they're grateful for them because it's like okay this means that they'll be getting help soon and people come down to the shore 
Uh, and uh, finally, like, some doctors are going to come to get Sandra. And Elizabeth witnesses Manuel and Sandra's deep love for each other. She's so impressed that Manuel saved the day. And he was so brave to, to just go back into this flaming ship to save her. And she's just really blown away. And she sees the love between them. But then Sandy is, like, in a weakened state. She says, she's still, her mind, she's such a one-track mind on this girl. She says... <laughs> Listen, she whispered, my parents, they don't know you came out with me this afternoon, Manuel. She closed her eyes and tears leaked out from behind her lids. If they find out... Manuel gave her a look of agony. What do you mean? I thought you were going to tell them. She shook her head. Please, she whispered. Manuel, they mustn't find out. I told them it was just a friend, just Liz. She turned her imploring gaze to Elizabeth. Will you back me up, Liz? If my parents find out Manuel was with us, I don't know what they'll do. Elizabeth stared helplessly, first at Sandra, then at Manuel. But, but Sandy, he saved your life, she stammered. In the confusion around them, no one really paid any attention to what they were saying. You saved me, Liz, she whispered thickly as two of the men lifted her onto the stretcher. Her eyes, shining with tears, fixed helplessly on Manuel as the men started to bear her away. Forgive me, she whispered, and her eyelids dropped shut again. An expression of emotional and physical agony on her face as the men carried her away on the stretcher. I mean, what a betrayal. It really is. What a betrayal. And it's literally her hands were burned. She almost died and her fear is her parents. Like it really shows that that psychological fear is even greater than the threat of physical death that she was very, that she faced. Yeah. And it is such a betrayal and it's just the beginning of a whole betrayal train. But yeah, she's so the, oh my gosh. Yeah. The worst thing that's happened, they're, they're worried about her being in shock, but like ultimately the worst injury that Sandy has suffered is that she's got second degree burns on both of her hands and they're really wrapped up in bandages. But unfortunately, because Sweet Valley is such a small town, it's not as simple as just like removing Manuel from the story because all of the news wants to know what happened. And Elizabeth is like, really loath to perpetuate this lie. But she does. What did she does? What did you yeah. think of this? So so she basically she's promised Sandra and uh, she's there's a part where it says I, I guess I don't really have to read it verbatim. But there's a part where it says that Sandra had put her in an impossible situation where she only had two options. It was like either she went along with this lie or she betrayed her friend. And I was like, well, what about Manuel? Yeah, it was really, like, the thing is, there was a moment where in Elizabeth, we're in her consciousness, and she's like, this is absolutely everything that I don't stand for. Like, I have enough integrity. I am not a liar. I am an editor of a school newspaper. I'm a writer. Like, it's clear she holds, I'm not Jessica. I'm not my twin. Like, this is, um, and for a moment, I did think, but then I think what, what makes her end up, uh, you know, covering for Sandy is she thinks that Sandy really is is an agony and so she kind of knows that this hurts Sandy um and Sandy's agony is like repeatedly used to justify and Mm. I'm sure that she is an agony but you know Manuel also is an agony too so I was and Elizabeth 
Because she hates... And Elizabeth herself. Yeah. She's she, getting I mean, she's being so... Placed, yeah, she's getting so much praise deep on her. And they, they want... She's, she's like, begging the newspaper people not to write about it. And, oh, my gosh, the newspaper guy says the same thing to Elizabeth that Elizabeth said to Sandra, which is, you know, it's not like I'm writing anything bad. Like... Right. You know, like, so when Sandy asks Elizabeth not to write about the gossip uh, in, in Eyes and Ears yeah. about Sandy and Manuel in Eyes and Ears, Elizabeth's right. like, I don't get why you're asking me not to put this in. I'm not writing anything salacious. I'm just, it's just journalism. I'm just reporting. And that's basically what the Sweet Valley I person love that. says. Yeah. I love that. That that is such a great connection that you made. And it also makes me think, like, the fact that Elizabeth is you know, runs this column that she is a journalist herself, albeit a student one. I mean, it does put her in a place of interesting, like journalistic integrity. Now where she's on the receiving end, she's being reported on. Um, I think like it definitely puts her in a a different, like in a difficult quandary. Like how could she go about running the school newspaper when she's lying to the community newspaper? Yeah. I was really disappointed in her, honestly, for not telling the truth and like because, sure, she's betraying Sandra, but she would be, like, anti-betraying Manuel. And Sandra and Manuel are, like, equal friends to Elizabeth at this point. She doesn't really know either of them yeah. very well. And I think Elizabeth definitely appreciates how hard this is all on Manuel. I think that's the main reason she feels so bad. It's not just that she's yeah. getting praise on, that she didn't deserve. It's that there is someone else out there that does deserve the praise. And this was a big place where, like, in the hospital, it was like, okay, great, Sandy can finally tell her parents about Manuel because he saved her life. So how could they not appreciate it? So the fact that right. she perpetuates the light, that's one of those off-ramps that she neglects to take. As far as the whole Jessica and Elizabeth thing is concerned, there is a, a quick little glimpse of the difference between our two Geminis uh, here. Yes. <laughs> um, after Liz is complaining about all the attention she's getting, um, she even gets a gold bracelet from the Bacons that she tries oh my to refuse. Gosh. And then, and Sandy is like, no, no, take it. Yeah. Take it, Elizabeth. <laughs> Jessica says, I think it's great, Liz. If I were you, I'd milk this thing for all it's worth. Maybe they'll give you money instead of an award, she added thoughtfully. Jessica, Elizabeth said reproachfully, don't you have the tiniest little sense of right and wrong? Jessica reached for another piece of toast. Not in this case, she said cheerfully. You're only going to mess things up if you start worrying about the truth now. It was such a cavalier attitude, and it was interesting to me that Jessica, in another book, in another version of this story, Jessica could have mined the secret and used it for her own nefarious agenda, but I guess for her, she was truly just in such a cavalier state. It's like, okay, whatever. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) It's like, you've gotten yourself this deep into the lie, and we might as well keep lying. Um, Elizabeth can't take it, though. She goes to talk to Sandra... And Sandra has her go to talk to Manuel, and it's clear that, like, I don't know, they haven't seen each other, Sandra and Manuel. They can't, really, right? Because Manuel can't go to Sandy's house to see her. And he doesn't go to school the next day. Both Sandy and Manuel are not in school, which I think also adds to Elizabeth's um, moral quandary. Because, you know, Sandy's recovering from her burns. Manuel isn't at school, which is like, okay, what's up? Yeah. And when Elizabeth goes to Sandy's house, she actually clocks the Bacon parents. Maybe this even happens at the hospital that the Mrs. Bacon seems like too invested in Sandy. And she starts to think about how Sandy could use some independence from her parents, which seemed like, wow, that's 
very incisive. Uh, right. I don't know that the book was really working overtime to get that across to us, but Elizabeth picked up on it. So when Manuel and Sandy are finally reunited, um, Sandy explains that, you know, she still hasn't told them and I'm sorry and uh, I just can't tell them and I need a little more time. And Manuel says, that's what you've been saying for weeks, Sandy. I don't think you're being honest with yourself. I don't think you're ever going to be ready to confront them. Sandy continues. What are you saying? She cried, panic-stricken. Are you trying to tell me that you want to break up? It isn't up to me, Manuel said sadly. What I want is for you to be my girlfriend. I want to be able to go to places together. I want to meet your parents and be able to pick you up at your house when we have a date. I'm sick of sneaking around like some kind of criminal, Sandy. I love you, but I need to feel you respect me. Enough to confront your parents. Enough to tell everyone we're going out instead of hiding it. I was so pleased when Manuel made that yeah. speech of sorts. Yeah, me too. I mean, again, it's like we don't get a ton of him, but but we do get, we get a glimpse of him a few pages later. And it's, uh, this was a part of the book that really I had forgotten. And now in 2020, mm. it was like, I was not expecting the police to get, to be invoked yeah. in the story. But police come and they come to school because they want to talk to Manuel. They, like, pull him out of yes. track practice. And they think that he's, like, he's implicated um, that he might have started the fire. Yeah. And it turns out that the Bacons have been, like, pressuring the police because they want somebody to blame. Like, they think that somebody was tampering with the engine as opposed to just being routine engine trouble. Which we know that the book planted in one little tiny line that Sandra had had this happen before with the engines. Not like it, everything's always been yes. hunky-dory. Um, and right. Sandra clocks that, like, she's sure that her parents really pushed the cops to look for somebody to blame because they're like that. She even, yeah, she says they're always looking for a scapegoat. Yeah. So Manuel gets taken into the police station, and the Bacons come, and Sandra comes, and they explain what happened. Like, listen, we, we have a guy. Uh, well, well, I will read it. And this is the part of the book that qualifies as my oh my god wow. moment for this book, because I did, in fact, say oh my god aloud uh, at the end of this passage. We've got the young man in question right here, Sergeant James went on. He claims that he's a close friend of your daughter's, that they know each other well, that all he was doing was helping her. Sandy, Mrs. Bacon exclaimed, her face turning red. Why, that's nonsense, she declared. My daughter doesn't associate with that sort of person. Uh, what sort of person, Mrs. Bacon? Officer Patterson asked. Sandra felt the blood pounding in her head. She couldn't believe this was happening. Sandy, her father said in a low voice, tell us the truth. You don't have any friends who we haven't met, do you? We've always trusted you. Your mother and I will believe whatever you tell us. Sandra opened her mouth, but no words came out. She was close to tears. She wanted to tell them the truth, but she couldn't do it. With a kind of dazed horror, she heard herself saying something completely untrue. I don't know what you're talking about, she said to the policeman. I don't remember talking to anyone. He must be lying. He's not a friend of mine. I actually have goosebumps rereading it right now. I mean, I just read this book this morning, but I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And I know, then, it was despicable. Ma then Sergeant James calls out, Manuel, come in here. The girl says she doesn't know you. This doesn't look good, I'm afraid. Have you been lying to us? Because, of course, they believe uh, her over right. him. 
Staring down at the ground, Manuel walked into the office. His face was expressionless. Sandra felt dizzy. She couldn't believe Manuel was actually there and she was going to have to look him in the face and claim she didn't know him. But she had lied too much to back down now and her parents' presence on either side of her was so strong. I'm going to ask you once more, Sergeant James said directly to Sandra. Do you know this young man? No, she said in a clear, strong voice. I've never seen him before in my life. I mean, literally heinous. It's just, uh, it's just the worst kind of, it's just like, it's what, uh, like, what, what are you doing? I mean, this is like, this is the thing. And we talk about it now, right? It's like, you might think that all you're doing is denying knowing someone, but what you're really doing is potentially sentencing this guy to like, uh, ruining his life, you know? Ruining his life. You're, he's. Your boyfriend, effectively, who saved your literal life. I mean, it's so interesting. My thought immediately went to situating this trope of a white woman blaming mm-hmm. a man of color for any number of things that right. are untrue, even when, especially when he saved her life or did something like, you know, uh, I, I mean, it's like such a trope that there's so many literary precedents for it. And in my head, I was thinking, just I know if Sweet Valley High were a different kind of book, perhaps they would be, like there. I, I there might be more cognizance around what this plot point means and like all of the other literary antecedents that it is in conversation with. But I was just dismayed yeah and also well, sandy how like what are you feeling girl at that moment you make a really good point though you, what i was just saying about oh sentencing this guy to potentially ruining his life depending on how things how things play out that's a terrible thing to do if it's a stranger but this guy is not a stranger right, yeah. this is like the love of her life luckily this it's- lie only lasts another like 10 seconds gladiators don't freak out too much yeah. because basically the moment that she's denied knowing him, she like the cock crows three times or whatever, and she she's like, oh shit! She realizes that um, what she's done, and she gives her parents a whole big talking to and explains that that they're Manuel is her friend, or actually he's they're more than friends, and um, he saved my life and. I lied about all of this because um, I knew that you wouldn't understand. And yeah, all of that. All of that. And Mr. Bacon really, um, he, after, immediately after (laughs) Sandy's speech, I mean, Mrs. Bacon tries to intervene and Sandy says, let me continue, please. And I I was struck by that because I was like, okay, girl is in the mode. She doesn't want her mom intervening whatsoever. Do you Um, want me to read it? Do you think I should? Because I I do have it right here. I think so. I think it's, I thought it was, yeah, I think it's pretty pivotal. Okay. Okay. I might as well read it then. Um, All right. So I, I, I sort of just summed up the beginning of Sandy's speech, which is, I love him. He saved my life. Sandy, what are you saying? Mrs. Bacon cried. You mean to tell me that you and this boy? Sandra could tell from her mother's expression exactly what was about to follow. Her mother was going to go through her litany of things wrong with Mexicans. She was going to humiliate Manuel in front of the policeman. But Sandra cut her off before she could say another word. Anger was building up inside her until she thought she might choke. And suddenly she knew she could do it. At last, she found the courage to face her mother. In her agitation, she didn't notice that the office door had opened. 
and Elizabeth Wakefield had slipped inside. Mother, she said in a forceful voice, let me tell you exactly what I mean. All my life, you and Daddy have tried to teach me that the most important values are honesty and respect for other people. Well, Manuel Lopez stands for those virtues more than any other boy I've ever met. He is loving, thoughtful, responsible... And more than all that, he's brave. For weeks he's wanted me to face you, to tell you that we've fallen in love. But I was the coward. Sandra hung her head for a second, then looked intently, first at her mother, then at her father. It's hard for me to admit, but I was ashamed of you two, she said softly. I was ashamed to admit that you could be prejudiced. It was the first time I had to face the fact that you two weren't always perfect. Mrs. Bacon started to protest, but Mr. Bacon held her back. She's right, he said softly. Go on, Sandy. I think your mother and I both need to hear what you have to say. And and they do hear. Um, and, you know, Mr. Bacon um, ultimately says, I would be proud if you were my son. And um, invites him to come to the dance at the country club. It's a real transformation. Uh, yes. And then Manuel, in turn, says, only if you and your family come to the Mexican festival. Um, yeah. Well, so one thing that is interesting about the idea of, like, the happy ending of this book is that I kind of was on the fence about whether what Sandra did was forgivable by Manuel. I, I'm right there with you, Marissa. I really thought, I, I don't think if I were in Manuel's position that I could have taken her back or would have wanted a relationship because I would have been a little distrusting. I'm, I'm not a little, a lot, you know? I mean, to have your humanity denied multiple times then so egregiously in front of your face um and you know yes they're 16 but i think it was just so there were such deep you know racial undertones slash not even undertone just frank like <laughs> yeah. fucking over, overtones, overtones you know? so yeah. i yeah i i i don't know i you know i'm curious like what's the longevity of their relationship but i think this is a big turning point for them but i don't know that i would have forgiven her at least not right away as quickly as manuel does i guess it's this is where we go to the the idea of them being in love like they're so madly in love that you know that they've they've weathered the storm thus far and they can continue to especially now that their families are like miraculously welcome each other into each other's lives. Right, right. Like you do wonder, like, well, what happens when Mrs. Bacon goes to the Mexican festival? Like, is she charmed by the right. you know delicious food and the the music? Like, is she won over, or is she just looking everywhere she looks? She sees, I don't know, whatever her worst fears are. I don't know. Yeah, it's also interesting too. Like, it's you know, Manuel is. It's interesting because repeatedly, all of Sandy's friends have been telling her as advice. Elizabeth included, like, if your parents meet, meet Manuel, they'll question their own, you know, racial prejudices, their own racism. Meeting one person can do that, Absolutely. right? And in the same way that a story can. Um, and I think by the end, obviously, that does happen where they do change their mind in some way. And so my question was, okay, they've changed their mind about. Manuel, now that they know of its existence, there wasn't a change of mind because they didn't know he existed in the first place. But I do wonder, like, if Mrs. Bacon is out on the street running errands and she runs into other Mexican families or folks in the neighborhood, how would she respond? How would that, how would knowing Manuel in turn inform her behavior with other people of the same background? Mm. Um, you know, because it's, you, yeah. like, it, it takes time, that inner growth that's necessary uh, and that, you know, to to truly change. Yeah, I have so many thoughts about that because on the one thing that I was thinking was I, I think what you said is so true that 
sometimes just like meeting a person that fits into a group that one has a prejudice against is really it causes that to sort of burst and and it's the most powerful catalyst for change whatever it doesn't have to be racial prejudice but whatever kind of prejudice it might be but also I'm thinking about Mrs. Bacon, you know, in 2020, like, let's say, you know, Sandra and Manuel get married, and they have children. And now it's 2020. And like, Mrs. Bacon, is she one of those people who was like, one of those white people who's like, well, I can't be racist, because my grandchildren are part Mexican. And it's like, well, that it's in a way, it's going back to this question of excellence, like, Absolutely. Well, so someone has to rise to the level of being a family member, or, or do you understand? Like, does are you actually extrapolating that out to the thing that it's taught you about the humanity of all human beings, regardless of race, or yeah, not, or are you not doing that? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's kind of. I was thinking that the whole time. And it's 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 interesting you mentioned that. Like in college, I was I was someone who would be up all night. So I would always frequently be up during, you know, the nighttime 3am. So I befriended a lot of the security guards and they, um, like all of them truly like literally would have Thanksgiving with them some years or would, you know, really got close to them. And there was one, um, with whom I was so, so close. And he, him, he dubbed himself like my college father. Um, he was one of many, um, he, (laughs) but he, and you know, he was just so, so sweet. And it was so, and he knew that I was Brown. He knew I was Pakistani. He knew I was Muslim, um, and he listened to me even vent about my own family problems and uh, just everything. He knew a lot about me, at least personally. But he would—he was also an adamant Trump supporter. And I, uh, graduating from college a few, like a couple years ago, so and I was in college when Trump was elected. So this was during that kind of very fraught period. Um, when, you know, we kind of were just realizing as a nation what was going on. The Muslim ban was literally happening at that time. Mm-hmm. And the security guard went on and on telling me, like, how he didn't want those people coming in. <gasps> he was so Islamophobic. But and I was I told him, I was like, hey, like, I'm I'm one of those people. And he would tell me, you're not like them. I know you. Oh, and God. it was so interesting. You know, so it just it has it, I've always just wondered, like, yes, there's that one person bursting your bubble. But and he was so I mean, he literally gave me he would give me cards i mean i think one time we even shared like a pizza you know it was just i mean again it was a very like intimate friendship i would consider it but there was still that stuff coming from his mouth he just um, didn't make the connection he didn't make the connection and you know who's to say maybe he has now or you know there's i always try to leave room for growth for people but i while reading this i was just wondering like is miss bacon someone like that or you know there's still room for her to grow um, of course, these novels don't have the real estate for delving into, you know, the Miss Bacon side of the story, but it would be interesting um, to see that the other half or like one, two, three years from now, if they're still together, where she would be yeah. and where Sandy would be too, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, that I'm so glad that <laughs> this conversation went there because I, you know, the podcast has been on hiatus while a lot of crazy stuff has been happening in the country. And um, I have really tried with Sweet Valley Diaries to always make it something where we're asking these questions and not always viewing everything through um, like a lens of default whiteness, which the books are very, very guilty of as much of uh, history, especially Western history and American literature is guilty of. Um, But it's been a little bit like, 
everybody's coming out and talking about something, <laughs> like <laughs> having a, and I was, the podcast was on hiatus, like we weren't really having a conversation. So hopefully this will be a little bit of amends making for that. And I really, really appreciate Aisha, you sharing your story and helping me do that, which I didn't know if that, I didn't know if that yeah. was going to happen. I thought maybe we would just talk about Manuel, but um, I guess we should wrap up <laughs> the story. First of all, Lila's birthday party. Oh my you gosh. You want to talk about what that a- as a palate cleanser? Yes. Oh my gosh. Lila's birthday party. So Jessica, as we mentioned before, Shadow Gemini, she is organizing this birthday party and it ends up happening exactly as she planned, which is to say Lila is at first tremendously um, pissed, doesn't even want to talk to Jessica. All the other girls like Kara and um, Amy Sutton have been uh, in on this and they've all been talking about this concert they're going to go to and on Lila's birthday. They've really been laying it on thick and, and even telling Lila that she's childish, she's babyish for even caring about her birthday. I mean, it's truly heinous. And all the other girls, like, yes, they're following Jessica's plan, but they're also saying, Jessica, maybe you've taken it a little bit too far, but Jessica is insistent. She's like, that's the whole point. I want to see how far I can take it. Because then, you know, um, she'll be placed in this position of victor. Uh, (laughs) It's so interesting to me. Jessica is so eager to cause pain at the same time that she's eager to be the person who can assuage the wound and assuage that pain. And there's just, I'm just, again, as I've said before, I'm so deeply fascinated by her psyche. Um, Cause I just, I wonder, does she have real friends? Um, <laughs> but anyway, by the end of this party, uh, Lila is almost in tears, really. She's like, here, I thought I had no friends and the whole school is here. And Jessica feels triumphant. She feels like it's almost her birthday in it's a sense so because wild. she's, she is the person who did this, who organized it for Lila. Um, so she she really gets derives a lot of pleasure from it. As wild as it seems to me, it's occurring to me hearing you describe it now that maybe this is some kind of like mean girl love language. It's just like Lila is a, like a grade A like bitch and proud of it. She and Jessica are absolute total frenemies. They have to show each other love in like a frenemy like pointy way that's the theory that i just came up with you know i think it's spot on and i'm just so fast like i'm i'm like i just am thinking about attachment theory and i'm like okay what kind of attachment theory (laughs) like you mentioned love language like what love language does um jessica have and also like it's mentioned in the beginning um that she you know she doesn't really have a steady boyfriend or like she's not very interested in pursuing a long-term relationship and i can see why because i'm just i wonder what would that look like for her to really (laughs) be in a relationship long term but i i say all this because i like feel very protective of her in the sense that I just want the best for her. I know that sounds very bizarre, but I could just see so many, again, unevolved or like shadow Gemini traits. And I'm like, you need to heal, girl. (laughs) Well, that is the best transition I could hope for into the big question of the show, which is, Aisha, are you a Jessica or an Elizabeth? Wow. Um, I think that there were days when I probably was a Jessica. I think that where I'm at now, like, I would like to think I am more of an Elizabeth. But I do see that Jessica, if she healed, 
could be such a potent force. I heal Jessica. We've never I gotten that Jessica. answer before. I love it. I heal Jessica. I have to put it out there. I think she is such a, like, she's a social butterfly. She organizes things. She brings visions to life. But the way in which she does it can be deeply conniving, deeply manipulative, and born from a place of insecurity. So I would love to, I think right now Jessica operates from a place of scarcity and last and lack. I would love to put forth into the universe uh, a future timeline, an alternate universe, a different dimension in which Jessica operates at, from a place of abundance, both in, like so that she believes that there is enough room for her and Delilah to be the queen bees. Everyone could be a queen bee. Um, I don't know. I feel very deeply passionate about Akilah Jessica. <laughs> that is the most beautiful benediction for Jessica that we have ever had on Sweet Valley Diaries <laughs> or any character, I think. Last thing of the podcast is usually to tease the next book in the series. Um, But we actually haven't talked at all about what this tease is going to be about because it was only faintly touched upon. But it's about a character named Enid. Mm -hmm. And uh, Enid's grandmother is moving in with Enid and her mother. And Enid's really excited about it. So... It has nothing to do, Gladiators, with the rest of the story. Not even a little bit, but it's something that pops up. And we're at least we're going back to our main characters for the next book. We're going to hear enough Molly Hecht, enough Sandra Bacon, enough new people. We're going to go back to our core, uh, the same character that book number two was about, Enid Rollins. And she's having, she's not having boy trouble this time. She's having grandma trouble. Uh, so, Aisha, would you care to tease us with the... Uh, for the next book? I would love to. Um, so, forthcoming uh, listeners, this is what is going to happen <laughs> soon. Does Enid realize how much her life will change when her grandmother moves in? Find out in Sweet Valley High, number 43, Hard Choices. I know everybody's uh, raring to find out about grandma stuff. Aisha Bori, you are uh, such a treasure. You are a great writer and a fascinating individual, and I... I'm wondering if listeners are interested in finding you out in the world. Is there, do you have any projects or handles or anything like that that you want to share? I do have a website that features some of my writing. Um, it's www.aishabhoori.com and you can check out my writing there. Um, and it's just been a thrill and a half to be here, Marissa. Thank you for inviting me to be on. I'm so giddy and grateful to have entered this universe with you. Yay. Well, I'm giddy and grateful to have you here. And I'll put a link to your website in the show notes. Amazing. Gladiators, thank you so much for listening. I hope you are enjoying season five of Sweet Valley Diaries so far. You know the drill at this point. Like the podcast. What? No, you don't like the podcast on iTunes. You rate the podcast with the five stars on iTunes, Apple Podcasts is what we call it now. But you could like or follow Sweet Valley Diaries on Instagram. That would be cool. And you could go look at sweetvalleydiaries.net if you're interested about the long and storied history of Sweet Valley Diaries and my thoughts on Sweet Valley High novels. Um, Aisha, thank you so much again for being here. You are a treasure. It's my pleasure, Marissa. You are a treasure as well, and so is this universe. So thank you for mining it for us. Yay! (laughs) 
she wanted to tell them the truth. She wanted to tell them the. <laughs> she wanted. She wanted to tell them the truth, but she couldn't do it. 